This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest. He is the Chief Technology Officer at the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. If you don't know what that is, he's about to tell us. Charles Worthington. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Albert. Uh, It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I'll start off just by giving a little bit of an overview of the Department of Veteran Affairs, uh, which some of your listeners may not be familiar with. The VA basically has the mission to care for veterans who fought or served in the military, as well as their families and their children. The reason why this mission is so important is there are over 19 million veterans in this country, and obviously they also have families, and we owe an obligation to them to help pay back some of their service. To carry out that mission, the VA provides healthcare to over 9 million veterans that are enrolled in America's largest integrated healthcare system. We've got over 100 big medical centers across the country, as well as another uh, number of hundreds of clinics and smaller facilities spread across America. And then we also provide benefits. Uh, Over $100 billion of benefits are distributed every year, Uh, things like the GI Bill to pay for education, as well as disability compensation for people who were injured uh, while serving. And the VA has over 400,000 employees. So it's the second largest agency in the government uh, after the Department of Defense. One way that I sort of think about that number is uh, about one in a thousand Americans works for the VA, to give you a sense of the scale. We have an awesome mission to provide great technology services, both to the veterans themselves, as well as the employees that are serving the veterans at the VA. Yeah, it's a bananas number when you really think about it. You mentioned before the size, scope, and scale, also the breadth of services. So I think, for example, for myself, when I was growing up, my uncle is in the military, and then I was loosely familiar with what was going on with the VA because he had to go when he had to go to the hospital stuff. But like you mentioned before, the GI Bill, financial services for veterans, there's a lot of different services baked in. For our audience to get a picture here, uh, we did some homework and we saw in a conversation that you said there's 10 million monthly unique users that use the VA website every month. And of course, they're not there for uh, checking out cat pictures. These people are typically doing something quite serious. Give us an idea of the scope, scale, and load that is on your systems. Yeah, that's that's right. So the VA's digital services provide a way for veterans to learn about, apply for, and then use the services that VA provides. And we get over 10 million unique uh, users a month. Sometimes that number goes as high as 12 or 13 million. And people are doing things like messaging their doctor, uh, refilling a prescription, or maybe checking on the status of their disability benefit, either a claim that they have in progress or you know trying to figure out when is the next uh, disability payment coming. Uh, all sorts of things. It's really a, a pretty diverse set of needs that people have. And uh, we have really taken a lot of steps to try to modernize this online experience over the past five years. The, the VA's website has really gone undergone a transformation. Before 2018, the, the homepage of the, the agency was, I sort of think of it as like a brochure. It was sort of like a brochure about the <laughs> VA. Uh, but where we have gone since then is trying to make the, the website a place where you come and do things. You're learning about, you're applying for, and you're using your benefits. Uh, and obviously, then we have complemented that now with a, a mobile application that launched last year, which I'm really excited to talk to you all about. Yeah, I want to get to that too. But before we dive into that portion, give us an idea of what the focus was. You mentioned it was went for brochure-like to like more like 
I said, I would describe that as executions, right? Like I'm going to be able to execute actions that I need. We read in your interview, there's three specific points that you guys wanted to tackle and address that things were hard to locate, that things were hard to navigate. They couldn't find what they were wanting to do or couldn't go where they wanted to go. Give us an idea of what it took to start transforming this. Because when I think of doing a website rebuild, because I've been in e-commerce before, I've helped build like websites with like a hundred pages, right? A hundred SKUs. That was hard. Like, <laughs> I don't even want to know how many pages you're dealing with and tools and functions and web applications. Give us an idea of the what it started, what that process looked like. How did you transform this website? The process of transforming the VA.gov website was a couple of years in the making, quite honestly. And the way that we started was first by asking users, you know, what do you need uh, VA's digital properties to do? And they really gave us that feedback. You know, they want to quickly be able to uh, complete the task that they came there for. You know, they're they're coming for a reason and they wanted just to be able to quickly complete that that reason, whether it was applying for something, uh, asking a question, checking on something. They had a they had a, a problem in mind that they wanted the product to solve, and what they told us is they were frustrated by uh, all the myriad ways in which the VA was presenting itself online. Your listeners are probably familiar with Conway's law, basically the idea that the communication structure of an organization reflects itself in the systems that 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 organization builds. And so for an organization as big as VA, where there's you know 400,000 employees organized into these different program offices, the way that the VA had approached building veteran-facing technology was basically every program office wound up building its own kind of part of the website or maybe even a different website. Yeah, that's dangerous. <laughs> so to access your benefits, you would go to one portal with one login. To access your healthcare services, it was a different portal with a different login. And, you know, veterans just told us, hey, you know, enough, this is too confusing. Why are you presenting yourself in these different program offices? Uh, and what we learned is veterans don't think of the VA as a series of program offices. They think of the VA as one entity, and it really frustrates them when one part of the VA doesn't feel like it knows about the other part. And to make that org chart, if you will, invisible to veterans took a lot of work. Basically, we had to work with all the different stakeholders in the VA uh, to understand what did they need their digital products to be able to do? Uh, was it making it easier for someone to apply for something? Was it trying to reduce volume of a call center? You know, What was the problem that they had? And we had to show them that by organizing that information into a more logical, you know, sort of coherent structure that was focused on connecting veterans to their top tasks, that we could do a better job. And the actual way in which we we launched this project, you know, it wasn't like one of these big bang, you know, on this day, everything changes. Uh, and I think that's one of the biggest lessons learned for the government coming out of things like healthcare.gov, where, you know, the idea was on one specific, specific day, the site was supposed to work for everyone. Uh, obviously, in the private sector, that's not how we would launch anything, right? We would, we would ease our way into things. And so similarly for the VA, there was an initial project that had sort of proved this idea of building in a more modern tech stack with a more modern sense of design uh, that had launched as a separate standalone website. And that had gained traction. A lot of veterans said, okay, this, this new website, it was called vets.gov. We liked what that looked like. But in a way that almost made the problem worse because now there was a uh, yet another website that veterans had to learn about. And so what we wound up doing is taking the lessons learned from that vets.gov project and basically saying, okay, what if we built the future VA.gov homepage, you know, the thing that serves 10 million unique users every month, what if we rebuilt that on the vets.gov tech stack with the vets.gov design sensibilities? And so 
we were able to use this kind of breakout innovation project that had gone fast, but kind of gone separate as a building block for the new project. And then even as we uh, came towards the uh, Veterans Day launch, we wanted to have it fully live by Veterans Day in 2018. We launched a preview of the site. Uh, we, we put it up at preview.va.gov. And just every day as that project was continuing, new features were being added to preview.va.gov. So that gave us confidence that the actual you know, new platform, the new site, it was a whole new tech stack, that it was working. And we slowly phased traffic into that preview site such that when it was time to actually do the full launch, it was really just flipping a switch from old VA.gov to new VA.gov, but new VA.gov had already been online for months and had already been serving real traffic uh, over that time. So we had more confidence that everything would go well. Uh, and, and of course, since then, you know, that was uh, almost, uh, I guess, four years ago now, uh, we have continued to add a lot of features to the platform uh, over time. So it's, it's really been a, an iterative uh, and incremental process. Yeah, no doubt about it. The way you describe it sounds more like, like you said, consumers, they're not thinking of a series of services they're thinking of. It's just one entity. Everything should be interconnected. That wasn't how it was engineered. Uh, the way you describe it now, it feels like almost like an SSO type functionality where if I'm like a jumping point to all the different services, so that hopefully it's more interconnected. For yourself, when you joined the VA, you know, this is a... It's a big departure. I mean, it's it's. I think our most of our audience knows it's hard to get those like quick shifts inside the government. Was this a big culture change that was already permeating throughout the organization? They wanted to do this, or is this something that you had to lead the charge and kind of convince others? You mentioned some departments were on board, and you know, there's probably others that were less quick to say yes, we want to do this. Give us an idea of what it was like to transform people's mentality on how this needs to be engineered. Yeah, you know, the, the cool thing about public service and, and why I'm working for the government, uh, you know, I never expected that I was going to work for the government. I, I came from private sector tech doing product design and software development, and I joined what I thought was going to be a one-year fellowship. And what I found here is that you know that everyone is working at a place like the VA for the right reasons. Um, almost everyone that works at the VA could easily have a higher paying job, you know, in their same industry somewhere else, whether that's a doctor or a nurse or a software designer. And the reason that they choose to work at the VA is that the problems that we work on are really interesting and the people we serve, you know, really deserve great technology, great products. And so I don't think that changing people's mind, you know, it's, everyone's there for the right reason. Everyone has good intentions and they really want to do right by the veterans. I think what the government has, has yet to sort of fully adopt, although we're getting there at the VA, is really the the past decade or maybe even a little more than a decade of digital product development. There's just new techniques and tactics that we as an industry have really created, you know, since the primacy of the cloud, for example, as a hosting platform, um, more automation tools that allow things to be deployed on a regular basis. These practices just didn't exist when the government first started writing software. So Getting the government to embrace those things is, is a little bit more of a challenge at times because it's just different than the way that the government had done things before. Uh, I think sometimes people forget that the government and, and other big institutions like the governments, they were really the first entities to embrace software in a really big way. And so most of these organizations, you know, we have systems that date back decades, literally. Uh, the VA basically invented the electronic health record system, uh, the very first electronic health record system. When the whole rest of the industry was using paper, you know, paper manila folders, the VA had invented a health record system. But that was over 30 years ago. And so the amount of 
history that we have, both in terms of the systems as well as the processes to use to adapt those systems, uh, wasn't built in this more modern era where you know we're used to doing frequent deploys, we're used to just shipping something on a server and that's live, you know, the next day or, or just the next minute, right, to a to a user. Uh, so those sorts of things are practices that we need to get better at in government. And I think we are making a lot of progress on that goal, mostly because everyone has the same real end goal in mind, which is providing a great experience to veterans. Yeah. And you mentioned it at the top of the conversation, and I want to dive into it because to kind of demonstrate this process, if I told my audience that the government has an app with a 4.8 star rating, they wouldn't say no way. They would say no freaking way, right? Because it's just so hard to make a consumer-facing application, which is what you're doing, right? You're basically making a consumer-facing application. It's not an enterprise login. It's not like a tool that I have to use for work. I don't really have a choice. If I could rate some of the tools I have to use, I would you know, give them zeros. Uh, but but you, know, <laughs> you know, like uh, you have a mobile app. It's got a million downloads. You mentioned in the top of the conversation, this big culture shift effectively. It's like, hey, we got to embrace these more modern techniques and modern toolkits. This is how technology is going to be built going forward. This is what our consumers expect. And now you have a mobile app with a 4.8 star rating. And like I said, that is unheard. Like no one would assume the government has a 4.8 star rating app. Give us an idea. What went into it? What is it? Let's start with what does it do? And then talk about the engineering behind it. Sure. Yeah. So the mobile app uh, is basically designed to help people quickly access the most common transactions that they have with the VA. So it's really for our existing users, if they need to come and do something quick, like message a doctor or check on the status of their claim, update their profile, we wanna make it really fast for them to be able to complete that transaction. Similar to the web project, this really started by listening to our users. And first we looked at the data, You know, we saw probably like many organizations, the number of uh, people that were visiting our website from their smartphone was increasing every year. In fact, uh, I think this year we're up to over 50% of all of those uh, page visits are coming from you know, a mobile device. It's like a consumer app now. Yeah. And so that is a strong indication that a lot of people are consuming our products from their smartphone. So that just basically led us to ask, are we giving them the best experience that we could or is there a better way to do it? And uh, you know, 2018, that wasn't that long ago. So we were fully into the mobile first web. Uh, approach. You know, we designed for mobile. It's a fully responsive website. But even so, uh, we hypothesized that a mobile app could provide a faster experience. We could take advantage of things like the biometric login to make it easier for somebody to drop right into their account once they've already logged in, for example, or you know, the camera to upload a document to the VA. Uh, so those sorts of features are a lot harder to implement with a, with a website. And just thinking about our own lives, you know, our team, uh, some of them are veterans, not all of them, but just thinking of our own lives, the way that I interact with like my bank or my airline, it used to be all the website and now it's almost all the app. Uh, and we thought that's probably something we should test with veterans. So that was really the problem we were trying to solve is for those, those users that are coming to us with a smartphone, how can we make sure that we're giving them a great experience? And uh, it led us to want to try basically an experiment to see how easily we could ship a mobile app. Because that also just wasn't a skill set that our our team had, and uh, so we went through a kind of a whole process that I could talk through about uh, testing the idea um, just with a prototype at first, and then gaining confidence that it was something we could achieve without sort of a, a massive investment that would require a big, you know, even bigger effort. Uh, and we we started down the path of, of building something that we thought would help veterans. Um, Similar to that VA.gov story, we wound up launching it pretty quietly last year, 
basically we just dropped it into the app store and didn't tell anyone really because there is no way to really uh you know unlike the web where you could do preview.va.gov there's no real easy way to to pilot a new mobile app it's either it's either in the store or it's not uh and so the way we approach that is we dropped it in the store but without a lot of fanfare uh and we started you know proactively inviting groups and groups of people telling them about it. And then, you know, a lot of people just found it by searching BA in the app store. And right away, we got a lot of great feedback from that, uh, both things that people felt like we needed to add to it, but also a lot of positive reaction uh, for the features we did have in the app. People said, hey, this is this is what I was expecting for the BA, and I'm really happy it's all here. And that's really just kind of continued this momentum over the past uh, year, we've become a lot louder about the app now that we've gained kind of confidence. We know it works. And as you said, we just crossed a million downloads. Uh, we're getting about 500,000 users uh, per month, uh, unique users using something, using the app for something, uh, messaging their doctor, uh, checking a, a healthcare appointment, checking on their disability claim status, things like that. Uh, and it's been really great to see this growth. You know, and one thing I'm, I'm kind of proud of is I feel like our our team, you know, is definitely a web first team. We've got a lot of people that are really into open source, you know, really into web as a platform. But our team was flexible enough to recognize this mobile, you know, mobile first way of working. Even though we felt like we were doing good responsive design, that a native app might be the way that our users are expecting us to show up. And so we kind of jumped in and learned a whole new skill set, uh, which we're still still learning. Um, but we feel proud that we've been able to accomplish that. Uh, it's almost like we've been able to like cannibalize ourselves. We're, we're taking transactions from our web team and now it's this mobile team, but, but that's okay. I think we always wanna be moving to where the veterans are and trying to keep the VA uh, meeting them where they expect us to be. And I think that's gonna go you know, be beneficial for your recruiting efforts too, because, you know, the reality is developers want to work on cool projects. You know, that's the fact, like they're not going to be, if I'm a good developer, I'm not really, you know, as much as I want to help, don't get me wrong. I also want to do cool stuff. You know what I mean? Like I'm not trying to work somewhere where I don't get to work on the most modern techniques, the most modern applications to test new technology stacks or frameworks and protocols. So the fact that you're pushing the the culture this way, do you see that potentially helping you get more talented individuals? Because like you said, there, there has to be two things. You have to be skilled, but you also have to be committed to a level of service. Because like you said, there, you know, if I were a, uh, an engineer in the private market, I could potentially make more money. So you got to hit, you got to hit me with something. You got to give me something. Right. And so it sounds like pushing to that culture is key. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's just like what you said. It's, you know, people are addicted to solving problems. I think that's what, um, good techies want, whether that's a developer, a product manager, a designer, a data scientist, they want to solve a gnarly problem. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what people get get out of bed for. I think that's something that the tech industry over the past couple of decades has, has really failed to develop um, is a tradition of public service. And I think that's actually kind of unique. I think that the tech industry is different than other professions in that it does not yet have a strong tradition of public service. You know, you think of like a uh, attorneys, for example, the very most prestigious thing you can do after graduating law school is clerk for the Supreme Court. You know, that's a public service job. There isn't the equivalent of that. You know, the most prestigious thing I can do as a data scientist is, you know, go help Social Security Administration detect fraud. You know, that's not a concept that exists. And I think that people, as they as this industry matures, I think we are going to build a muscle of public service, uh, a tradition of public service. And that's been exciting to see. I think there is a there are a lot of people out there that are kind of looking at the past decade or so of, of tech, especially consumer tech, and kind of questioning like 
the problems are interesting, I guess. Like, how can we quickly connect users to the world's knowledge, right? It's an awesome mission statement. But at the end of the day, the way that that business is really working is trying to get more people to spend more time in the app so you can sell ads more efficiently against that time. You know, there's a lot of problems like that uh, that exist in our industry that ultimately at the end of it is kind of like a business model that doesn't really, you know, you question if that's really something worth putting all this energy into. Uh, and you you look at the Web3 <laughs> past year or two, not that I want to get into that landmine. Uh, past couple months, yeah. 45 days. <laughs> it just feels like there's been a lot of technology effort spent on things that have questionable problems worth solving at the end of them. And if you could imagine that same effort being put towards uh, something like, you know, getting a veteran the benefit that they earned fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan, treated for cancer with world-class, you know, AI systems, you know, just at the bleeding edge of healthcare. Those are problems that are worth solving. And, you know, I'm kind of guilty of this myself. Before I joined government, what I was working on was uh, a startup idea of my own. Uh, it was a live music discovery service. Basically, you know, you pick your city, you press play, you'd get shown a video playlist of all the bands that were going to come come visit your city. Uh, and I was really excited about it, you know, in my 20s. And uh, it was fun. But at the end of that, it's like helping uh, a pretty well-off person have a slightly cooler weekend. You know, it's not really a problem worth solving as much as it was fun to work on. So I think that is uh, a way that we can recruit people to come join the government, uh, even though it doesn't quite have some of the same perks as uh, as a cushy uh, tech sector job. So I got to ask, what was it that made you have a change of tune a little bit? You know, you're you're heading down this path. And I mean, I get it. Like, you know, I... I totally understand. I myself, that's why I entered into tech. I think it's fair to say, like, I started off as a teacher. I wanted to do a little bit more. I started working for Department of Health Services, and then I found the tech industry, and I was like, all right, well, I kind of want to earn some income. Uh, that's what I chose to do, right? And there, it, at the time, it was all the rage, you know. Of course, you know, there's windfalls of money and technology, and that's kind of what I did. But for us, you know, when we when we sit here at IT Visionaries, one of the things we get and no one really sees is how many pitches we get to join us on the show. And me, myself, and my producer, Jana, we always talk about like, hey, some of these things just don't feel like they're solving a big enough deal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you're an engineer and you can do cool things. And I'm not saying you're, what you're saying is not worthy, but it doesn't feel as good as some of the things that, you know, like, I, I guess that's the way I'm getting at. So for yourself, you know, you're, you're making this app, trying to help people discover live music, what made you uh, say, all right, I want to serve the government? How did you change? Yeah, you know, for me, I think it came to, I'll take it back to my parents. Uh, my my mom was one of the first computer science graduates uh, from Duke, and she worked on projects like she programmed some of the programming that went up in the space shuttle uh, working for IBM back in the 80s. Uh, and my dad worked for the government. He worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, he just retired a few years ago after over 30 years. So, you know, my mom was doing kind of software work. My dad was public service and fish and wildlife. And I guess I'm a weird combination of, of the two, uh, which, which I guess makes sense. You know, back in 2013, that's when I, I was working on the, the live music thing. I got a offer to join the government for what I thought would be a one-year fellowship uh, as a part of this program called the Presidential Innovation Fellowship. It was a, a new program that was designed to bring tech talent into government to work on some of the, the most gnarly problems that the government has. And so I was kind of like weighing, you know, should I should I take this offer? You know, it's kind of this interesting, really unique opportunity, uh, or should I really go for this startup idea, which at the time was like I was ready to kind of launch in the first cities, but it, it wasn't something that had already like fully launched and, and was working on. So I was kind of at this inflection point, and I think what 
you know, what it came down to for me was feeling like at the end of the story for the live music app, just thinking through like, if this is as successful as possible, you know, what does that look like? And then just kind of realizing that at the end of that, I wasn't sure that I would have felt that those couple of years working on it were spent on something important enough compared to what I might get a chance to work on, you know, for this one year fellowship uh, and really didn't, you know, didn't know what to expect, but kind of took the leap in. And it was about halfway through that fellowship that first year in 2013 that the healthcare.gov site launched. Uh, your, your listeners might remember that was a pretty was epic government tech failure. Uh, <laughs> you know, it launched, it crashed, and then a team of folks, including some of the presidential innovation fellows that I was working with, as well as other folks from across the tech industry, were sort of scrambled together uh, to go fix that website. And they they spent uh, that fall basically getting healthcare.gov from a site that was essentially broken, you know, not working for anyone, to something that was able to enroll over a million Americans in healthcare. And coming out of that experience, I think it made people in the government basically, it made the status quo feel untenable uh, because this was, you know, a signature policy of the administration that was basically going to fail because they couldn't figure out how to ship a, a modern website correctly. And then it was rescued, right, by, uh, by a team of people that had this more modern set of skills. And so it gave momentum to the idea that the government should have a permanent capability of people that have these skills that can help work on some of the most important services. Uh, and I got the chance to, to join the White House uh, working for the, the federal CTO uh, at the time, who was Todd Park. He led the healthcare rescue effort. And when Todd got back from fixing it, it basically uh, gave us the ammo we needed to pitch the idea that there should be something called the US Digital Service uh, which could attract uh, a bigger group of these sorts of people that wanted to come do public service, kind of starting to build that tradition of public service in the tech industry that I was talking about earlier. So I got a chance to, to move over to the White House, help build the U.S. Digital Service. And then uh, I, I joke that I had basically every job there was at USDS as we uh, got that organization off the ground. It was really a unique opportunity sort of to build a startup, but within one of the world's biggest bureaucracies, which is the U.S. federal government. But yeah, grew that organization to uh, over 200 designers, engineers, product managers, and other sort of techies. Um, and that was what kind of kept me past that original one-year fellowship. And, you know, I, I guess I'm still, it's almost 10 years later now, and I'm still working in government. Uh, again, I thought I was going to be here for a year. The reason I'm still here, though, is it feels like every year we're getting access to more and more important problems and more and more openness to doing things in a better way. And I really feel like that's reflected if you think back at some of the more high profile tech things over the past couple of years that the government's been involved with. It has been a lot better. I think when the tech stuff is just working, you don't really notice it, so it doesn't get a lot of press. But uh, you, I think back to a couple of years ago um, when the administration announced that there'd be COVID tests available for free, You know, just come onto this website, sign up for a COVID test, and we'll ship it to you. Yeah, that has all the trappings of a, a possible healthcare.gov style meltdown. But because we have had a couple of years building this capability in government, the, the launch went off without a hitch. You know, the Postal Service wound up running that website. The digital service was involved, uh, giving them some advice to kind of make sure that things would work. And uh, the site just worked. That's what people expect from the government. They want it to just work. And I think more and more we're able to deliver on that assuming we can continue to attract more tech talent to want to spend some of their career in public service. Well, you know, when Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon, he was able to convince 
engineers, the the development of NASA, everyone's put it, working on some of the biggest, hairiest, audacious, most audacious problems. When the birth of aviation, the FAA obviously created the r- radar system was going to track planes. It does seem like there was like a gap of bureaucracy where people like, so it, to your point, it used to be the forefront of the biggest problems, the biggest tech innovators, best engineers were 100% willing to raise their hand and say, I want to solve that. And there was this gap, like you suggested, of possibly, for whatever reason, bureaucracy took over and innovation kind of slowed to a pace. And now, like you're talking about, we're pushing into new frontiers. You know what's interesting about what you talked about in the last, we joked about the 45 days, the Web3. I can say it. You, you're, you might, you're not about the common, but I'll say it. This idea that everything should be deregulated, people are finding out that that's not a good idea. Like, <laughs> that's, the, that's the biggest thing they're finding out. It's like, wow, we need a source of truth that says, this is how things work. Because without that, you have what's happening at FTX. Because I'm on, I'm public. I've lost some money on FTX. I want my money back, SBF. And I don't like how he's getting a public platform to just kind of say what he wants to say. But, <laughs> but, but to your point, like you know, we need we need great engineers, great talent, great people to solve. Because that's how it used to be. They used to solve for the public sector, and then private sector could follow some of the learnings. It kind of went away from that more recently, but it's changing again. Yeah. And, you know, I, I almost question that premise a little bit because I, I do feel like that innovation is actually something the government continues to be excellent at. You know, we just launched the James Webb Space Telescope, right? That was not a, a private sector endeavor. Uh, and we've got, you know, cancer treatments are coming out of our national health systems. Uh, the, the COVID vaccines were in part developed with the support of the federal government with a really innovative way of financing uh, vaccine development and these these speculative uh, approaches. And so, uh, and at the VA ourselves, we have a big healthcare system that's really at the forefront of a lot of clinical research. So I think innovation is, a, is something the government is actually pretty good at. The thing that the government is not as good at is keeping up with best practices in digital delivery. And I think that gap in particular, you know, there's a difference between shipping a website and shipping a rocket. Yeah. We're still pretty, pretty good at shipping rockets. The websites uh, require basically adopting the current set of standards and practices, which the government was a little slow to do, uh, but we're catching up. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I agree with you that the tech can only get you part of the way there. Um, and thankfully, I'm, I'm getting these a lot less now, these pitches uh, from blockchain type companies. But the past couple of years, you know, it'd be like, hey, we've got this great idea to like solve health data interoperability. We'll just we'll put it on the blockchain and, you know, problem solved. I'm like, well, I think you're you're skipping a few steps. Like the problem with health data interoperability is, you know, the incentives of the industry, the lack of standards, you know, all these like structural barriers that, yeah, if we could solve all those, then then we can get it on the blockchain. But, you know, at that point, why not just put it in a big Postgres database, uh, you know, with like uh, uh, the consortium of healthcare workers, which is effectively what we we have. It's just that the the reason that those things have not gained momentum is not because we're missing uh, a distributed database technology. It's it's a more structural problem that I think too often techies are guilty of skipping straight to the tech uh, and thinking that that will solve the problem and sort of missing that there's actually these bigger societal problems. Maybe it's an organizational problem, right? In a big org like the VA, the the problem wasn't that we didn't have a website or a a way to do these transactions. The problem was we just hadn't, you know, done enough to get the VA to convince itself to put all those things into one solution because that was harder than you know just letting every program office do it their own way that was the natural way that it would would work um, and that wasn't a technical thing to fix that was just kind of a um, you know a few of us that were 
uh, believing in a better way to do it, uh, trying to organize the agency to do things better. You know, it's funny whenever I talk to engineers who work, because the way I get you know, a unique place where I get to talk to so many is that, you know, a lot of companies, when they want to do things bigger, better, move faster, often they can sim- they simplify or they'll cut services or things like that. It's like the government's duty is not to cut. That's a big challenge, right? Like if the service is available, the service is available. They don't have a way to just be like, oh, we'll just hide it or we'll, we'll just obfuscate it. Like what? <laughs> and, you know, one of the challenges we have is we, we have to serve everyone. That's right. We can't build an app that's going to work, you know, for 80% of the population. But hey, these 20% that don't have a bank account or yeah. that are blind uh, or low vision, you know, we'll get to them later. That's not something that we can do. And yeah, I think that's a, a problem that's exciting to solve. I, instead of thinking of that as like a, you know, hindrance, I think it's actually interesting. Like, how can you solve a, uh, you know, a mobile app that's super accessible for blind and low vision veterans, uh, which we, we did from day one of the app. Uh, and it actually was, uh, when you thought of it as an opportunity, I think, you know, it's actually probably one of the most accessible products that the VA has ever delivered because the, the smartphone uh, operating systems, uh, both Apple and Android, have pretty good native accessibility features built in, you know, screen reader services, a way to navigate the device. And something we learned is that a lot of, uh, a lot of blind and low vision people, they primarily experience the internet using those smartphones just because those, those features uh, have become better than screen readers, some of those dedicated devices in some cases. Uh, and so right away, we were able to take advantage of those native accessibility features to make the app uh, possible to navigate for people that are using assistive features like that. It is definitely a unique challenge in government. You know, you've got to build for everyone. And digital uh, experiences is just one part of it. There's also a lot of people that are just going to prefer to talk to someone or walk in and get help that way. And we want to make you know, that work just as well as the, the digital stuff. So there's a whole ecosystem of software that's supporting all those in-person and contact centers. Uh, which, you know, we probably don't have time to get into all of it, but you can imagine uh, with an organization the size of the VA, uh, there is software behind everything and uh, there's a lot of work to do. No doubt about it. Listen, you you know, just as any other company out there, you're really just beginning, right? You know, like, the, and this is, you know, Bezos is famous for saying day one. I mean, you really are like every day, day one for probably what you guys are doing because your breadth of services seems to change. I don't know. How often does the VA offer new services or add services? Like it's probably like every day someone's probably tapping on the shoulder. Hey Charles, how do we add this? You're like, nah. yeah, you know, it, it, you would think uh, it's kind of static, right? Here's what the VA does, but actually, it it really has changed a lot. It's been an area of uh, bipartisan focus for the past several Congresses. You know, making sure that the VA's benefits are kind of keeping up with the needs of the modern veteran. Just this year, uh, there was a new legislation passed to expand disability benefits. Uh, It's called the PACT Act. And basically, uh, it expands benefits available to a number of conditions that are caused by toxic exposures of various kinds. Okay, Burn pits is kind of the most notable of those. Uh, But basically, changes the way that VA uh, rules work such that more veterans are just assumed to be eligible for these benefits depending on when they served. And so that's an example where, you know, we are expecting a lot more disability benefit applications to come in from these veterans that are newly eligible for the benefits because of this law. And so right now we are working on uh, looking at, you know, how can we streamline the way that VA processes these claims? Uh, how could we get a veteran a decision in days instead of months? Um, because this decision you know, requires reviewing a lot of evidence. And uh, there's some really interesting things that we're doing on that side as well, uh, looking at 
connecting data that we and the Department of Defense already know about the person, connecting that data to their claim uh, to see if there are opportunities to streamline things uh, to make make a decision faster than than we would traditionally be able to make one so that as we get more and more of these claims, we'd be able to um, still deliver the decisions in a really quick manner uh, without without sacrificing the speed of a decision. You might think, yeah, government's kind of static. You know, the VA has been around for a long time, but the things the VA offers actually does change quite a bit, mostly because of these bipartisan bills that are coming out of Congress over the past couple of years. So it's a they keep us on our toes, which we appreciate. <laughs> no doubt about it. There's probably never going to be a day uh, where you get to go to work, whereas I was like, nothing's changing. You know what I mean? Like you guys have something all the time. Well, Charles, man, it was great having you on the show. For whatever the impression of what's happening in the public sector, most people kind of, you know, they throw it off. But you're, you're absolutely right. It does lead in innovation. And now we're going to lead in delivery. This is fantastic. I'm glad that you're on the mission. But Charles, before you go, I want to say something. We got to do something for our sponsors, and that is it's time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation. Very experienced, Charles. This is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? All right, let's do it. You had to have been a music lover. What kind of music do you like? Uh, you know, I like all kinds of music and building that app made me actually just realize that I really did. There was genres that I had never tried, you know, like metal or country, you know, things that I didn't get into as much in my normal taste. Building that app, it kind of made me realize that all music is basically awesome. And so I, I feel like I'm pretty open to, uh, to anything. Uh, these days, though, I wind up, uh, you know, the Spotify top lists, you know, uh, it winds up being pretty depressing. There's a lot of uh, Moana, Frozen, uh, I've got a <laughs> five-year-old and a three-year-old. So I feel like most of my music consumption these days is uh, kid music of some kind. Although this is a tip for parents out there. We got my five-year-old onto 90s alternative. So she's like a huge fan of Weezer, uh, Green Day, basically going back to my my classics of the high school era. She has her own playlist that she's obsessed with now that does not include kids music on it. So recommend uh, trying to do that. Smart move. It's funny you brought that up because I was just joking about how I don't understand how the number one song on my Spotify playlist or top two was, uh, you know, Olivia Rodrigo. It's like, well, my eight year old daughter and I share an account. So uh -huh. <laughs> that'll do it. That'll do it. So you got a chance to experience all types of live performances. If you were a musician, what style of music would you play based on how the audience reacts? Oh, man. Well, I'm going to take this seriously and like literally. And I would say that if I had time to become a musician, I think I would attempt to become a fiddle player. Really? One of those uh, fiddle players that's like on stage at a honky tonk in Nashville. And you're like, oh, my God, I never knew I liked the fiddle. But they're just like totally crushing it. Uh, I feel like that would be really fun to become good at. Last time I was in Nashville, I actually uh, had that epiphany. And so I bought a fiddle, which turns out a fiddle is just a violin. Uh, that's something I learned. So I now have a violin. But I'll tell you, uh, a thing that is not pleasant to hear is somebody that has never played the violin trying to learn the violin. Uh, so, so far, the violin is uh, under my bed. And maybe one day when I get a house out in the country and I have a separate studio away from my wife and kids, I'll, I'll learn how to play that thing. Hey, listen, your neighbors will thank you. My neighbor kid kid is learning how to play trumpet and I'm all for kids learning how to play music, but I'll tell you right now, he's not good. He's not. <laughs> well, pretty soon we probably won't even need instruments. There'll be a, a new open AI model probably that will just write all the music for us and uh, uh, it'll be taken care of. That will not be a good day. I agree. <laughs> for yourself, you know, it sounds like you're a dad. 
what do you like to do with your family? Are you are you outdoors people? Do you guys go to, you know, I'm assuming you live near Washington, D.C., so there's a breadth of museums. I grew up in the D.C. area. Fun fact, uh, growing up in the D.C. area, the first time I had to pay to go to a museum, I didn't understand. I was like, what do you mean? Like, it's it's not free? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we live near Rock Creek Park uh, in D.C., I'm looking out at it right now, actually out my window. So we're out there all the time uh, in one of the the big, it's a big national park right here in uh, central DC. And one kind of cool thing is the, uh, the zoo is also right by us, which is free, like you said. And so I, you know, my kids are growing up thinking that uh, zoos are A, free, and B, something you can walk to from your house, which is not really a thing in most, <laughs> most cities that you'll get to live in. Uh, but it is always a, a fun day when we can, you know, on a spring morning, we'll have the windows open and you'll hear the lions roaring from outside our window as they wake up. Uh, it's it's kind of charming in a way. Uh, but yeah, we get outside a lot. I like to run. Uh, so that's my big thing is going running in the park. Yep. We saw that you have a, you're a avid Peloton user runner. Hey, listen, growing up outside DC or right in DC, it's such a unique experience. I'm telling you, your children will have the same oddity when they leave. And they're like, and then they're, they're told they have to pay to go to a museum or zoo. They're going to go, like, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. We try to soak it up. You know, it's uh, when you drive to the airport and you're driving by the monuments and you've just done it so many times, it starts to like, just be like, oh yeah, it's just another day. But then uh, it's always when people come and visit, you kind of remember how cool of an experience it is to get to uh, you know, I work across the street from the white house and I just sort of look at it every day and uh, it's, it's kind of neat. <laughs> Yeah, it is. Well, Charles, it was awesome having you on IT Visionaries today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing some of the things you're up to. I mean, I think this mobile app is proof positive that things are moving in a great direction and a place where your constituents and your consumers want to, you to be. And uh, if anyone out there listening to the show right now, one of the fun things that we do in the show is we obviously have a lot of audience members that are getting into or new to the world of tech. If you're wanting to do some innovative things, do a little public service for a huge, big, hairy, audacious mission that is ben directly benefits the veterans who have served the country in the United States. Give Charles a call. Send in your resume. He's looking for great talent. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'll just specifically say oitcareers at va.gov is an email inbox we set up that is specific for people that are just considering, hey, I might want to take this plunge into public sector. Maybe you don't know much about it. It can be complicated. There's a big ecosystem. Send us a note. We'll help you out. Um, you can also look up programs like the U.S. Digital Service for more mid and late career folks or the U.S. Digital Core, which is geared towards early career techies. Uh, there's a lot of interesting ways for people to come in and make an impact. Uh, and yeah, we'd love to have more of you on our team. So if you're thinking about what's my next thing, hit us up at oitcareers at va.gov. Awesome. Charles, thanks again for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you.